We're going to be today in 1 Corinthians 7. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up there, your phones or your tablets or whatever it is that you look at God's Word in. If you need a Bible, there's going to be some people coming down the aisles that would be happy to hand you a Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, it's our gift to you. We'd love for you to be able to just take it with you. Um, we're passionate about God's Word here at Cornerstone, and we're hoping that you also, if you're currently not passionate, you become passionate about the amazingness of God's Word. So what we've been doing is, is we've been looking at Matthew 19, um, and we've been there in Matthew 19 for just close to two years now. Not really, not really. But we've been here a while because I think there's so many amazing truths found in Matthew 19. And specifically, we've been talking about marriage. And one of the things that we've been learning about marriage, that the greatest marriage killer that is out there, the greatest obstacle that we face is what Jesus talked about in Matthew 19, which is this issue of hardness of heart. It's this reality of what Jesus came to change that's so important that he was going back to Jerusalem to die on a cross, to be raised from the grave, not just because God was bored. He was going there as the means of transforming people. His work would not only allow us now to be in right relationship with God, but the beauty of Ezekiel 36 is, is that we were going to receive a new heart. And so all of you now that have come to faith in Jesus, that have trusted in him alone, whether you sometimes realize it or not, because we still struggle, don't we? Every day, boy, we struggle. I've got lots of testimony already today of the fact that my heart still needs uh, some more work done to it, but I love the fact that I've been given a new heart. And in talking about that, then last week we got back together and we talked about kind of, first of all, how this applies to married believers. So we jumped into Matthew 19 and we looked at this idea of, number one, of what does it look like to maybe be these people with healthy marriages? Because there's some people that are inside of this room that have healthy marriages. I know there's some people inside of this room that are probably considering divorce. I know there's others of you in here that you've, you've already been divorced. You're in a state of singleness. And then I also know there's people that have been divorced and are, are, are remarried. There's all kinds of different ones in there. And we try to just talk about, well, what are we, what are we supposed to do with that? And the main thing that I came to is this idea of these four points from it, which is just number one, marriage between followers of Jesus, we're called to be faithful. We're called to build security. We're called to be holy, man. I, in some ways, I feel like we've lost what that just full meaning of that word holy is. But special, unique in what it is. We're called to be make permanent marriages, ones that are steadfast. And the way that I really tried to finish is around this idea of grace, that I don't care what it is in your marriages, if you don't believe you need grace, whoo, you don't have a clue about marriage, I'll say that. Because in marriage, and the, just the hot melting together of two people that struggle, boy, we need grace, don't we? And so whether it is that we need to learn that his grace is sufficient for me, for powers made perfect in weakness, or whether we need to learn to work harder than the rest, but not I, but God's grace in me. Whatever it is, we need to learn grace. And with that then, though, I told you that this week I was going to get to this little word, except for sexual immorality. In fact, my, my email box was full this week going, when are you going to get to it? Seriously, Todd. I've been waiting to find out what, what, is, what is it that the scriptures teach about this except thing. And so I'm going to get to it three weeks from now, actually. No, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get after it. But here's how I'm going to get at it today. 
First of all, there's also people within this context that I know you're married to people that aren't followers of Jesus. You're married to an unbeliever. And you are, some of you, you're in, you're in, a, you're in a good marriage. Uh, oftentimes when I talk to people that are married to unbelievers, they'll generally say to me, you know, gosh, I, I love that I'm married to this one. We, we love each other. We care for each other. But we are, we, we, I do feel like I miss something. That's kind of the, the general way in which people generally frame it for me is I feel like I am missing something. But they're in a good marriage. There's other of you that have been married to an unbeliever and you're considering divorce. There's others of you that in your past used to be married to an unbeliever, but now you're divorced. There's others of you that have this idea that, man, I'm married to this person that calls my, themselves a believer, but they don't act like it. Now, I'm going to get to that one seriously. I'm not joking right now. I'm going to get to that one next week because I want to set it aside exclusively to deal with next week because it's a really hard issue, I think, to work through. But I want to make sure that me, on behalf of the rest of the elders, that we really do explain this because I think it's very important. But looking at this now, I want to just reiterate before we get going. In the same way as two people that are married to believers, those that are married to an unbeliever, guess what you need just as much? grace. We're desperate for grace. Like I said, whether it is grace to learn that when I'm weak, I'm actually strong, whether it's grace to learn that it's the power of God in me that causes me to work, his grace in me, we need to keep that at the forefront of our thinking. But in this context, in 1 Corinthians 7, you can open up there in verse 10, we learned last week that the not I but the Lord was Paul. He was pointing back into like Matthew 19. He's like, look, I need to answer some things about marriage by going back to this idea that's found in Matthew 19. And if you remember right, the way that he talked about it was I give this charge. In other words, I am giving now a decree. A decree from the king, a royal decree. So this isn't something that you just kind of toy around with. I'm bringing a royal decree from King Jesus, and I need you to listen to this. And we kind of unpacked how that worked in, in a marriage between two followers of Jesus. He goes on, and you can look at verse 12. And after talking to two people that are married, that are followers of Jesus, or who'd been married to followers of Jesus, he said to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. In other words, I, he was referencing Matthew 19, but he says, now I have something to add to this. Now, some people that are kind of red letter Christians go, well, then this must not be as important. This must be a step down, but let me show you something. In 1 Peter 1, 20 through 21, it explains, let me just read it to you, is that knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture, okay, that's what we're talking about, scripture, authoritative scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, we're not just red-letter Christians. We're ones that believe that God carries people along to write scripture that's authoritative. And not only that, but later in 3.15 through 16, he's talking about God being patient for all to come to repentance. And he says, just as our beloved brother, oh, here we go, Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letter when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which I love, by the way, because I read Paul sometimes, I'm like, what, dude? <laughs> which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. In other words, Paul writes scriptures. So in other words, he's not just giving any kind of a royal decree. When we look at that little context in verse 12, he's speaking authoritative as well. But now he's going to speak to a group of people that you'll see this, that a brother who has a wife who's an unbeliever, not a follower of Jesus, or a, a woman who has a husband that's an unbeliever, that's not talked about in, John, in, in Matthew 19. 
They would have been sitting there going, yeah, but what about me? I have a few questions about how to be married to someone that's not a follower of Jesus. That's what this letter would have entailed. What am I supposed to do? You talked about what it looks like to be married to a believer, but what is it that it's going to look like for me as one who's married to an unbeliever? How am I supposed to walk through this? I think in many ways, they probably got to this position because people come to know Jesus after they're married. I have this, there's all kinds of people in this room right now that I know you didn't used to be a follower of Jesus. You were married, but not a follower of Jesus. And now you have come to know Jesus and you're probably looking going, how is it that I'm supposed to be married to somebody that's not a follower of Jesus? We're not on the same page all the time about the purpose, the intent, the meaning of life. What am I supposed to do? And then I think there's others that Paul was writing to, no doubt, that they probably were followers of Jesus, but they chose to marry an unbeliever. Now, let me just deal with this issue really quickly so that we can, we can understand this, because I think there's just a lot of times people talk about this issue, but we never come to kind of an understanding of what it is, what's the seriousness, if you're a follower of Jesus and you choose to marry someone who's not a follower of Jesus. Well, all throughout the Old Testament, if you follow it through and you read through, God always had the intent that his people would marry those that are his people. You'll see this whether he's talking about marrying tribes around them. You'll see this whenever it's talking about kings and the mistakes that kings made when they would marry people that, that weren't part of the people of God. He commanded against it. Don't do it. Even by the time we get into 1 Corinthians later in, in verse 39, Paul tells these, these people that had been married before that no longer had husbands or even you could say this wives, if they're going to marry, they marry only what? In the Lord. Even in chapter 9, a little bit later, you'll see this, that he talks about the fact that he has the right to take a wrong, not just any wife, but a what kind of wife? A believing wife. Now, if you're somebody who's married an unbeliever, let me just say to you, is that that is, was disobedient, okay? That was a disobedience. That was rebelling against God. We're not supposed to do that. But I also want to look at you and say this. God's grace is sufficient even for that. And your marriage, while different than mine, I'm married to a follower of Jesus, a very good-looking follower of Jesus, if I might say. <laughs> a follower of Jesus, your marriage is equally a marriage as my marriage. It is one that is now what God has joined together, let what? No person separate. But I will say this, though, that while there is grace and there is forgiveness and it's wonderful, you are now asked to walk as one married to an unbeliever a path differently than my path. Now, I know so many that I've talked to that are in this particular situation when they talk to me, they oftentimes say, yeah, but you don't understand, Todd. I don't want to. And I go back to 2 Corinthians 12 when Paul said three times to the Lord, I don't want to. But what he learned is my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will glory all the more in these difficulties that I face so that I might learn anew and express to people that while I'm weak, he is strong in me. 
I just want you to know this. While maybe you came into this wrongly, it is a high call that you have to be married to an unbeliever. High call. I don't know if I can make that weight enough because he's going to use this word holy in here in the rest of this passage. And any time the writers of scripture use the word holy, this is not a game. It's not a second class reality. This is important. And so what I want to do is I want to show you this. Whether we're talking about now, if you look there, kind of in that first part, married to an unbeliever who wants to stay, and we're going to see a command he's going to give. And I love this. Anytime God gives a command, he always gives a what? A promise. He's going to give it to those that want to stay in the marriage. We're going to talk about that. And then there's some unbelievers that want to leave the marriage. There's a command and a promise in that. But let me, let me start with this first one just to say this. If you're in marriage to an unbeliever and that person wants you to stay, Paul is going to give the command, stay. Don't exit. Stay in there. Now, how is he going to do that? Well, if you look down at verse 12 and verse 13, he says, if you're married to this one, and then you'll see in that first part, see, she consents to live with him or he consents to live with her. Now, that word consent, right, it sounds like, that's weird, consent. Is this like a consent form that they're supposed to sign? Or like, what are we, what are we talking about here? Well, that word means so much more than consent, like we tend to think about it. Because actually built into that word is this idea of agreeable to, this idea of being pleased with, this idea even of applause. Meaning that person that's an unbeliever that's married to that believer is like, no, I wouldn't give up this marriage for anything. In fact, their idea of their spouse is one of applause. I love being married to them. And that's why I changed it up a little bit, kind of take out that word consent because it seems so cold. But the idea is, is pleased to live with him or is pleased to live with her. Paul's like, if that's the state that you're in, stay there. In fact, he's going to use this word in there. He's going to, he's going to, as he talks about it, is this idea of he should not divorce or she should not divorce him. Now, again, we have to deal with that word should, right? Whenever I use the word should, I talked about this last week. If I told my daughter, you know, you should clean your room, what's she going to do? Not do it. This word should is not a nice suggestion. It is actually a command that says he must not divorce her or she must not divorce him. Don't do it. Again, I think someone is in there going, wait a second. I don't know if I want to stay. I want to get out of this. I came to know Jesus after or I, I knew I shouldn't be married to this person. I don't know if I want to do this. And this is where I love the promise of what it is he's going to give out here. And so starting in verse 14, he uses this little word for. He says for, and he's going to give an explanation. The unbelieving husband is made, here's our word, holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. What's he talking about there? Well, one of the things that we know it's not saying, and all of you that are in here that are in my Bible study methods class, you know that we ask the question, not only what is it saying, but what's it not saying? It is not saying that by being married to a believer that you're a believer. Let me just say that. Salvation is not through marriage. 
Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. That is how we come to know Christ. So we know that this set-apartness can't be the fact that just because they're married to a believer, now they're saved. That's not what he's talking about here. I think what he's talking about here, and I think it becomes so important, is this one that is made holy is put in a set-apart position. They're put in an absolutely privileged position. Front row. I'll never forget this, the first game that I went to, an NBA game, and a guy took me, and we started kind of walking through the different things. Next thing I know, we're sitting down right on the court. I was sitting in a privileged position. I could smell them. I could see them like no other. I could hear them. I was in a privileged position, and the next time I went back to a game, I was up in nosebleed in an unprivileged position. What he's saying is, is no, you're getting front row seats, and that person may not even know it. Husband or wife that's in this type of a relationship, your unbelieving spouse is sitting on the front row, and they're getting to watch the power of God in you. Spouse, if you're in here today and you're a follower of Jesus, the Spirit works in and through you. The same Spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the grave is in you. The same power of the resurrection, the inbreaking of new creation on a daily basis, even though, let's be honest, we don't always feel like it, is in you and that spouse gets to be a part of that and witness the power of God through you. They are on the front row. And here's the crazy part. Most of those spouses that are not followers of Jesus watching that, they have no clue the privileged position they're in watching the power of God. But you do. It's not that you are so special. It's that you're the one that God chose and put his Holy Spirit inside that makes you so special. And you get to show off God. That's huge. See, in some levels, they might be going, yeah, but will that guy make me or that woman make me unclean? Like the Old Testament talks about hanging around the people that aren't people of God and I become kind of, it's somehow unclean. And it's like, no, you're like Jesus, who when he would go and he would touch those people with diseases, he would touch those people that were blind, those ones that they looked unclean. Jesus didn't get unclean. He touched them, and in a unique way, they were made clean. You're there every day with this person that you're married to, and you will never be unclean. Instead, the opposite, you are bringing wholeness and goodness like Joseph did when he was sitting there in Egypt, and they, he was made in this high position and power within that country. Everything that he touched started to turn to gold in a unique way. You are that person inside of your home. You catching this high calling? Though you may have got there through rebellion, this is what I love. Joseph said this while his brothers or even he could have maybe even meant it for evil. God means it for what? Good. And there you are. Your spouse is getting a front row seat. Okay, well, I I might be clean, but what about my children? What about them? Well, Paul says in verse, at the end of verse 14, he says, otherwise your children would be unclean. But look at this, as it is, they are, ooh, there's a word again, set apart. 
They aren't saved because they're in my home. They are put in a privileged position. I'll never forget this. I was sitting down with a kid. I was a youth pastor at this time, and I was talking with him about, man, it's just like, I'm so sorry that you have a dad that's not a follower of Jesus. And I was, we were praying for him. And he looked back at me and goes, why are you sorry for me? And I go, well, man, like I would love for you to have a dad that knew Jesus to walk you through these things. He goes, Todd, you know what's crazy is inside of the youth ministry? These people that have two saved parents, they don't understand how incredible it is the house they live in. He said, I see the contrast in my mom. My mom is a passionate follower of Jesus. He said, if I had to choose which one I want, I want what she's got. Front row seats to the power of God. And so in this room today, if you're married to an unbeliever and he or she is pleased to be with you, applauds you, is in an environment that's good, Paul would look at you and he would say, stay, why? Because you were, back Matthew 5, you are that light on the hill, you are that salt, you are that one that comes into this situation to represent King Jesus in the way that he did things. Don't miss your high position, number one. And number two, those of us that aren't married to an unbeliever, that's why we need to hear this message because we need to come alongside of them. They need to be loved and cared for in a unique way because while those of us that are married are displaying who God is in this world, they are doing it in a different way and they need to be cared for and nurtured. And so those of you in this room that are followers of Jesus, married to an unbeliever, we love you. And I'm so thankful that God chose you in that privileged position. All right, everybody with me? All right, Tom. I suppose so. If you say it's good, it's good. Is everybody with me? Okay, good. My goodness. So that's the first one we have. Paul's going to look at these people and say, this is, this is the way I want it to work it out. Now, the second one that we have is married to an unbeliever. And what's fascinating is the first one says you must stay. And now he's going to give them a command, actually, you must go. Sounds like an 80s song. Should I stay or should I go, right? If you don't know what that song is, ask your parents. Yeah. But here's what he says. In one case, we have the believing partner that's creating now, and I would just use it this way, the way that he talks about it, consents. It's drawing together. The the purpose and intent of marriage is always to draw together. In verse 15 now, it says, if the unbelieving partner separates, it's this, this Greek word, korizo. Now, to separate could mean on one end, it could mean a, a, a definite like divorce. It's synonymous that way. It doesn't mean what we tend to think about when we talk about separation inside of kind of Western culture at our time. It's not a third thing where you can either be married, separated, or divorced. In fact, I would just say this. The Bible never has the middle territory anywhere within Scripture. It only has married or divorced and nothing in between. We've created this one, and churches take advantage of it, I think, as this way to kind of not have to deal with either side of it. But he's just talking about it could either be number one, that you're, they want a divorce, or the other thing this word means is to intentionally create distance. That means abandonment. It could be leaving that particular person, or it could even be doing things that are causing distance between you and your spouse. He's saying in there, if the unbelieving partner is creating distance, let me just say it that way, 
then what I want you to do is, is let it be so he's going to talk about. Just, I want you to let this thing now happen. Let them create distance. And I would even say this, let it go in the words of what's the movie? Let it go. Frozen. There we go. Let it, let it happen. Don't stop it. In this particular context, he's now going to explain out of this kind of an issue of why. Well, first of all, he's going to say, well, you can let it happen because you're not enslaved. And this word is very, very important. If you remember right, when we were talking out of Matthew 19, the key was, is what God has joined together, what? Let no one separate. Unless, and here's the acceptive clause that we're talking about, is unless it's under the grounds of a way in which God has designated for a marriage to be brought apart. So on one case, we know from like Romans 7, it talks about marriage and slavery, which is so fascinating. But in this, he's just talking about because we want to serve one another. He said, you keep serving one another like slavery to one another until the spouse dies. So one of the ways in which God chooses to separate marriages is through what we call death. Another way we saw in Matthew 19 was through sexual morality, and I'm going to explain that more a little bit later. But in this context now, Paul is giving us under the authority of the Holy Spirit as one who has this authority God granted to him, is if that person separates, divorce has created space between you, let them. Let them. Let them do this because you're not enslaved. In other words, this is a route that God gives us. He joins together and he's the only one that determines how this thing comes apart. Not only that, it's, he gives a reason beyond that where he says, God has called you to peace. Now the hard part about this word peace is that I look around this room, some of you are kind of old, let's just be honest. And you remember the 60s, don't you? You remember the 60s. Well, some of you more than others, but you remember the 60s where we talked about peace. Eastern mysticism talks about peace. It's not a state of mind in the Bible. It's not like, oh man, I just got peace, bro. Peace, peace, peace. It's also not the song, I got peace like a river. It's not that either. It's not a state of mind. It's a state of being. To have peace in this kind of a way is to know who reigns and rules. Whenever you see this word peace throughout the New Testament and it's put together, it's this understanding of peace from the standpoint of who is the one that rules over all things. And his rulership now being brought to bear, shalom, in the way God intends it to be. He's saying to them, in this particular context, God has called you to peace. He's called you now to live in the way that God has intended. You are now free if this person separates. I'm going to leave this one case kind of close a little bit, but I want you to see this next word in there, in such cases. Now, I'm going to geek out just for a little bit here, and I've kind of already been geeking out. Just please stay with me. Okay? Some of you are looking up, what? <laughs> stay with me. Now that word in such cases is a word that I have overlooked and it wasn't until a guy named Wayne Grudem and I started to study this passage a lot more that I realized there's a lot to that little phrase, in such cases. Those three words that we're looking at in English are only used zero times in the rest of the Bible. 
It's not used anywhere else. In fact, the only time it's used is not in such cases, but in such a case. When it's speaking about the very thing that it's referencing to. Now, what Wayne Grudem did is then, because he couldn't find it in the Old Testament, he couldn't find it in the New Testament, he started looking at different writings kind of throughout the time at that particular point in the world. And he found this particular term, in such cases, is an interesting word because it's not just meaning the one before, but the one before and similar cases to this one. In other words, I believe what he's talking about here, and this is the way that I'm going to kind of translate it out a little bit, is in this scenario, in such cases, there's more cases than just the idea of, of abandonment. There's this way in which it's pushing it apart. But in such cases can also mean this idea of this and other similarly destructive cases, ones in these particular lines. In other words, this person may consent, they may want to stay in some ways, but by how they're living, they are destroying what God had intended. They are not a part of peace in the way that God intends things to be. By their actions, they are pushing things apart. In Matthew 19, this is where I think it plays into it, sexual immorality, this ongoing, getting caught up in it over and over again is a way in which marriages are destroyed. It's not the intent of God. And so it seems to be, again, what Grudem is talking about now is that there's more than one way to destroy a marriage. The way that Grudem puts it together, and he talks about kind of this idea of, of this sin that's uncontrolled, that creates this distance, it's, it's, it's antithetical to the marriage covenants, it's sharply contrasted to God's purpose and intent, it forces sometimes the spouse to flee, it forces the kiddos to flee for protection. He says there's other reasons for this, and then he's going to give these two, no doubt. By the way, this one I also believe, and this is just, I think, so important to our time, Men or women that are addicted to pornography that do not want to change, that are going to stay in it, that is sexual immorality. That is staying in something and destroying your marriage. Abandonment. He also includes physical or sexual abuse against you and your children. In other words, like in this particular case, abuse by an unbelieving spouse forces the abused spouse or the, or to flee in any kind of way for self-protection. The abuser caused the separation just as much as he or she had deserted the marriage. It's corizzoed. It's, it's forced apart. It talks about extreme prolonged verbal relational cruelty that's destroying the spouse's mental and emotional stability. Credible threats of physical harm or murder of spouse and or children. Incorrigible. I had to look that up. And then I found recalcitrant. Then I'm like, oh, inveterate. Oh, incurable. There we go. I got that one. Drug or alcohol addiction accompanied by regular lies, deception, thefts, violence. Incorrigible gambling addiction that has led to massive overwhelming indebtedness. in these such cases, these things that drive a marriage apart, it is the same thing in some ways. It's in such cases. I think on some levels too, for the longest time, I've held a different view. 
and I saw so many people like the Pharisees that were weaponizing the Bible. Men and women who would weaponize the Bible to stay inside of their marriage and say, yeah, but I, I didn't have sex out of marriage and I haven't abandoned, so she has to stay with me biblically. She has to, and they weaponize God's word, and that man or that woman that's caught up in it, in their mind, is now frozen. And so then what churches do, like I said, is they create this third class of separation to which the Bible never speaks of. But I think in this one, and again, good godly people have disagreement on this, so I, I'm not saying I've got the corner market on this reality. But I believe deep within my heart, and this in such cases, the more that I've wrestled it through, where there is not peace, where there's not the reign and rule of Jesus from the standpoint of, of marriage being as it intended to be, and it's an ongoing way in which it's antithetical in that way, that it's, it's one that the person is trapped in that sin, eventually, I think you're supposed to let them go. Now, let me just say this to you. You don't make that decision alone. Do not make that decision alone. I've always found that when I am at my lowest, I make really poor decisions. Really poor decisions. Don't go to your echo chamber. Right, there's people out there you're gonna go to and they're gonna be like, oh, that's right. <laughs> I, leave, I left him two years ago, right? No. Don't go to your echo chamber. The thing that us as elders are saying, come to us. Let us walk with you through that. Don't trust yourself in that decision-making process. Let us walk with you through it. And so if you are somebody here today that is a follower of Jesus, married to an unbeliever, and you're thinking, I may be experiencing these things, come to us, and on a case-by-case -case basis, we will seek to walk you through how to, get, how, to, how to proceed in this process. And by the way, there's no right or wrong answer sometimes. Sometimes it's just hard and you're trying to wrestle this one through and seek the Lord. We would love for it to be just nice and black and white and super and simple. But the more I've studied this passage, the more that I've seen, oh gosh, it takes wisdom, empowerment by the Holy Spirit to work through it. And so I hope everybody heard me. Do not make this decision on your own. Come to us. Because sometimes what it is, is it's just a marriage that's difficult. And it's learning to stand up underneath it. But I love this. He, he's going to call them or give them the command. But, but I think the next thing that he's going to do is he's then going to now give them the promise. Now look at this. Look down at verse 16. Four. In other words, he's now going to explain this again. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, by letting them go, by letting them to, to, to part from you, or even in some ways, they've created distance, and I'm now just going to let that distance go ahead and go in this way. He says, in this way, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? What is he talking about here? Well, I think the answer is found in 1 Corinthians 5 when dealing with an unbeliever is that I think sometimes for the good of the person, for them to really come to know Jesus, you need to look at them and say, go get your sin. Go. Don't stay in this house underneath my protection and in my walk with Jesus in this front row. You go get your sin. 
And in fact, the way that it talks about it in 1 Corinthians 5 is from this standpoint, is that you turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that their soul might be saved on the day of the Lord. It's that dad with the prodigal, right? Oh, the prodigal comes to him and says, dad, give me my coin. Time for me to go get mines. He goes off and he's in the pigsty. And let me just say this. When you're in the pigsty and you're looking back to the glory of God, it looks a lot more attractive. Let them go get their sin. I don't say that with pointing a finger at anybody. I just have found sometimes they need a front row and sometimes they need to be in the pigsty eating, pea po- or eating, eating pods and longing for what it used to look like to be around one that was a follower of Jesus. They need to go out and get it. Now let me just say this, let me reiterate. I don't say this as somebody that's just sitting up here high and mighty going, that's right, that's what we're gonna do. Yeah, those all losers. Because that man that I had to tell to do that, which we'll talk about next week, the first time was my dad. I'll never forget looking across him in his eyes. He'd had multiple affairs. I went out there to confront him. And I remember just that grace of God in that moment going, Dad, just go get your sin. Just go get it. I go, Dad, I love you so much that I would much rather your flesh is destroyed so that your soul is saved on the day of the Lord. Dad, just just go get your sin. It's the heart of a parent when we do that with a kid, right? It's like, oh. But in both cases, think about this. In the one case where they cause them to stay, that takes an immense amount of love that only the Spirit of God can do in that person. But I've also found to let someone go and go get their sin takes an incredible amount of love. And I think this is what Paul's saying here. And so if you are somebody who right now is married to an unbeliever, and they are doing in such cases to you, they are driving you away, do not, please, I beg you, leave from here and think, well, Todd told me to go. No, I did not. Well, then I'm going to go find friends that tell me what I want to hear. I did not say that either. I said, come talk to us. Let us walk with you. Let us help you through this process. Let us walk with you in such a way that at the end of it, that high calling, you can put Jesus on display. Is everybody with me? Okay, if I find out any of you... Like say, oh, Todd said this, or he told me to go find friends to tell me what I want to hear. I, I, I don't know. I'll chase you down to your home. And I don't know what I'd do when I got there because I'm a lover, not a fighter. But just please, 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 please don't walk through this alone. And for all of you that are married to unbelievers that have always felt like you're alone, it is my invitation to say, please don't be. Come to us. Now, here's the last thing. Dang it, I'm way behind here. What I want to do right now is I want to invite John uh, Reed up to pray for us. So, John, if you could go ahead and come on up, and we're going to pray. 
And I want all of us to join as we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are married to unbelievers. And I want us to do it in such a way, not checking out. I want you to join John right now in this prayer. And here's what I want at the end of it. I want those of you in here that are married to unbelievers to be so empowered by today that you're able to go back into that marriage and do what God has asked you to do no matter what it is. I want you to feel a church behind you, a church that loves you and cares for you. I want you to go in there with the belief though, and here's my heart in all of it. I believe that that man or woman that you're married to, I believe deep within my heart that God may be wanting to draw that spouse to himself. Let's pray evangelistically believing by how you live, whether with them in the front row or them having to leave and go get their sin, that it is the sovereign way that God is going to use to rescue your husband, to rescue your wife, or potentially even I'll say this, to rescue your kiddos. And so as we do this, please stand, and I'm serious right now, let's pray in agreement with John, believing that God is going to do a work. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Others within our body who would love to pray with you today, if you need prayer. And we've been doing this as part of our, our monthly rhythms before the elders have our prayer night, the second Tuesday of every month. And just, you know, we, we just love that time. It would so love for you to come join us on the second Tuesday night here at the church. And if you're thinking about it, some people come in and they say, I've been thinking about doing this and I just, I'm finally here and uh, what a blessing it is. So please join us. And uh, let's take some time to pray right now. God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for this time of teaching. We are so thankful for your son, Jesus. Jesus Christ, you gave to die for us, paying the penalty for all of our sins, who was then raised on the third day, conquering death, giving eternal life to those who believe in this truth. Thank you, God, for these teachings from Matthew 9, for the gift of marriage, as we've been walking through this as a body according to your truth. Marriage is a relationship where we can celebrate oneness before you and honor you to bring you glory. I pray that we can honor each other in marriage, including marriages when a husband or wife, or not both believers. We ask for steadfastness and continued faithfulness for a believer who may be praying for an unbelieving spouse. You know both of them and love them more than we ever possibly could. Pray that they feel supported in that ministry, ministry of significant ministry of life. Thank you for your mercy and grace when a believing spouse may have the desire to walk away from a marriage to an unbeliever. We know that your grace and love is more than sufficient when the difficult daily choice is made to stay in it to God's glory. I pray that a believing spouse in a marriage like this would be encouraged and flourish in their life-giving relationship with Jesus in a way that is leading for others, even outside of their marriage. What a testimony that can be to those who don't know you, both the unbelieving spouse and others in the world. And for an unbelieving spouse, I pray for a realization of the many blessings found in a marriage with a believer. What a gift to have a daily testimony to your love and service, Lord. 
And first and foremost, Lord, I pray that for those who are here today and do not have a relationship with you, that unbelievers may be here to learn more about you, would believe in the gift you gave us to your, your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That today would be the day when the testimony of a new believer will begin and heaven will celebrate, Lord. Thank you for how you lead us, even in the most significant struggles of life. For those who know you and believe, you realize we can't do it without you, Lord. You are our strength, our courage, our steadfastness, our faithfulness. We depend on you completely, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of your mighty and precious Son. Amen.